I went to, to do some phone canvassing the other night. Now, I used to run political campaigns. I've set up phone banks for years. You do phone banks at lawyers' offices for the phones. Well, I walked in, and there weren't any phones. In fact, there weren't any people. Because you use your cell phones, and you're phoning off of lists that were on your computer. What a good idea, I thought. Why didn't I think of that 30 years ago when I was doing campaigns? It was so well organized, so efficient. You probably didn't have a cell phone then. I may not have. One of those crank things that long. But on the other hand, I made 42 calls and only got two people answering because everybody just saw you know, my name. And it was overwhelmingly to women. And they saw your name? Yeah, well, the if they had known me, they would have raced to answer the call, obviously. <laughs> but not knowing it, or confusing me with the Mike Levitt, who used to be the Secretary of Health and Human yeah. Services, um, the other Mike Levitt, as we say, um, they were probably afraid and, and didn't answer. But that was a low, 40, only two of 42. That was a lot of hitting. Then, of course, the next day, people started calling back. <laughs> Have you know, not knowing, you get to say, Well, who is this guy? And they call back, Well, then I don't want to take the call. <laughs> so, this, um, well, we're going to start. I, I guess I this is Michael Levitt, and he sort of <laughs> got into this right off the bat. I think you have his bio, and he's played a very interesting role in, in development, working in very difficult areas, fragile states, emergence, emerging economies and promoting uh, small business development in these areas and, and promoting public-private partnerships, uh, which is, is um, one of the more innovative ways to do development. And he's uh, done this for 20, 25 years. And then uh, one of the other interesting questions we always talk about here is how you got into this business. He has one of the more peculiar backgrounds uh, for getting into development of having been a vice president of a couple of different movie companies and involved in the production of Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark and all this sort of thing. So we'd like him to talk a little bit about how he made the jump. And you were a journalist for the Los Angeles Times and a White House fellow and a few other things as well. So he's got a very interesting background. So to talk a little bit about what you've done over 25, 30 years and then how you got into the business from what you were doing before. And over to you. Thank you. And thank you. And I'm very sorry I'm late. But <laughs> it's all because of the Chinese. Um, and that's the truth. And I'll get back to that. Um, well, welcome. Um, let me start sort of at the end, which is where I am now working on economic development, often in in difficult or messy places. We really have, we've talked about this a lot, coming up with the right words. We don't have a really great vocabulary right, right now. I mean, we work in messy countries? Not quite right. Conflict, well, maybe they're not at war, but they're difficult. Yeah. It's hard to come up with a phrase that's not too unkind, it's pejorative, brutal. to the folks with whom you're working. On the other hand, you don't want to pretend that you're in Hawaii, um, you know, doing economic development at the hamburger stand. Um, well, 
right now I'm happy to say there's actually some exciting good things going on in economic development in difficult places. The world I, in which Bill has worked and done some amazing things through the years and which I've tried to work, I think is there are rays of sunshine when you look to see um, are things going to get better. Um, and I think on economic development grounds, economic growth, on creating economic opportunities, they actually are going to get better in the target countries, parts of Africa, parts of Latin America, parts of Asia, in which we work, um, in, in part because of uh, just changes in the way the big economy works. Um, we did a paper, Ashley Chandler and I did a paper here um, that talked about um, the role of supply chain, of big supply chains in economic growth. And that really starts with changes in the way big business is operating. Big business, international, multinational companies, you know, for many years looked at most of the world as a source. They looked at it as a source for cheap labor. They looked at it as a source for cheap supplies of raw materials. Um, they always had an effect on the economy, on economic development. Except usually it was negative effect because they did not contribute, these big companies, very much to the economy. They took and took and took. They weren't being evil. They were being sort of amoral, aethical. It wasn't in the business plan what happened to the folks. Well, obviously, a number of companies operate on a different way now because of corporate social responsibility. They do have a different attitude going into a country. They may also have a different attitude in a country because the country may stand up and say, wait a minute, we have rules here. Um, we need you to use do a certain amount of your business with local companies, mandates. That's particularly true in the oil industry where Chevron may have to contract with local suppliers. This much, but some mandates. Or it may, they, companies may just find being good citizens, it makes good business. Think of it as risk insurance. Chevron gets tired of having its pipelines blown up in Nigeria, wouldn't you? Um, and if you create jobs, create businesses, create health programs, whatever, you are buying risk insurance, social license to operate. All that's true, but it all dwarfs in comparison to the impact or the potential impact uh, when these big businesses swing their supply chains into a company. Because now, when these big companies look at uh, host countries, it's not just that they're sources of cheap labor or cheap raw materials. These are their future markets. This is where they're going to have to do business. Walmart, and I'm picking them out, not out of good or evil, just big easy names. Walmart can't grow very much in the United States, can't grow very much in Canada, can't grow very much in Europe, but it can grow an awful lot in Africa. It can grow an awful lot in Latin America. But it can't grow unless the countries in which they want to operate have real economies. 
they don't just want to take bananas out of Ghana, they want to sell bananas into Ghana. So, you know, the easiest way to think of it is Henry Ford, who didn't like his workers very much, but paid him $5 a day so they could buy his automobiles. Well, you don't have to like your local Ghanaians very much if you want them to be able to buy bananas. They better be working for a living. They better have jobs. Well, the easiest way for big companies to affect that is to expand their supply chains to include local suppliers of goods and services. Easy in the sense that this is all money that the company is going to spend anyway. It has to buy basic goods, basic supplies from somewhere. It can buy it from Halliburton <coughs> in a global contract, or it can buy it from Harry's supply shop down the block. And what the companies are finding is that if more and more they can do business with Harry's without having to lower their standards, international companies have very high procurement standards. It, having been a supplier to them, let's say BP, it is a pain in the ass to have to be a, to qualify as a supplier. The rules that you have to meet, the knowledge you have to have, it's not easy. So getting those companies up to the ability to become suppliers actually has great benefit to local economies because those companies operate locally and they raise the standards everywhere, everywhere within the country. But they also win these contracts. They win $10,000 contracts, $100,000 contracts, million-dollar contracts. And obviously they hire a lot of people, they build up their ability, they increase their ability to perform. Um, let me give you a really easy example, Angola. We did a project in Angola working for BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Total, sort of. Total doesn't like to play, they sort of got dragged in. Um, and Sonangal, which is the state oil company of Angola, which is more powerful than the government of Angola. You do nothing in Angola unless Senegal says it's okay. Um, and if you want to be a tourist, by the way, Angola doesn't yet have a tourist visa, so don't rush right in to visit. Um, but we, we did a four-year project in Angola in which at the beginning there was almost no local contracts, and by the end we had trained about a thousand companies. There were $250 million in local contracts. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of jobs. That's building the quality of companies enormously. And it's all done with money from big companies. Um, by the time we left, we had created a freestanding Angolan consulting firm with 30 Angolan employees, which continues to operate when we're after we've gone. All the thousand companies we trained are now in the economy, creating more jobs, building more businesses. Um, and a number of them are now over in Mozambique trying to qualify for contracts against Mozambique companies that we're now also training to win local contracts. And the Mozambique companies are, co are complaining that the Angolans are outsiders. We're used to BP being the outsiders. Now this is the Angolans being the outsiders. Um, and and uh, it's a wonderful problem to have. It's a real measure of success. 
It's wonderful to win one contract. Winning the second contract is great, is even better. Jobs are wonderful. Contracts build economies. And I really think that the biggest change over the last years in economic development is this growing role of the private sector to spend huge amounts of money, far more money than AID or DFID development organizations could ever think to spend. Again, not because these companies suddenly became good guys, but somebody pointed out to them it was good business for them. Angola is a more flowing economy, still far from great, but far better off than it was. These companies are all terrific. They're all expanding, creating new family and national wealth. They are feeling more confident making demands on their government. Um, all, again, all paid for by the private sector in the best interest of the private sector. None of this came from corporate social responsibility money. This was their bottom line operations money. The, the future, I hope, is, and, and we can identify examples of this kind of change going on in any sector. The big change, the big success story will happen when we can get the donor organizations, the AIDs and the DFIDs, and these big private sector companies to collaborate. Real partnerships, not what AID used to mean by a partnership, which is Chevron, you give me a check for $20 million and I'll spend it and use your name over and over again. That's a traditional public-private partnership. The real public-private partnership, and we have them, I mean, is when an AID takes note of where these big companies are going to grow, where their supply chains are going to go, and what those supply chains are going to need. AID pays for a training program, two, three, four million dollars over a four-year program, and helps pre-qualify thousands of companies, individuals and companies, to compete for and win the supply chain contracts. Right now, if we're waiting for the big companies to do it, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. They don't see it as their job to build capacity. AID traditionally does see it as its job, but it's often not comfortable going to the end user and saying, what do you want? What do you need in coming years? Because we'll help supply that. Now. None of my friends who went to work for AID did it to make Chevron richer, I think. I don't think. Was that on your no, list? <laughs> but Chevron's going to get richer anyway. What I want to do is help them get richer by helping the Angolans or the folks in Mozambique or in Gabon or wherever build their economies using that money. And I think it's absolutely doable. I see it happening in more and more places, in more and more sectors. And one of the things we'd like to do here at CSIS, one of the little things we're working on right now, is seeing if we can't help move that along in a more structured way to get the donor world and the big companies to more link and look at their business, the look at the big business plans, map those plans, and then figure out what are those timely targeted interventions that a donor organization can pay for that will significantly expand the use of local content. 
I use training as an example. It could be building the last mile of road for smallholding farmers. It could be building that little storage unit to combine the holdings of smallholding farmers. Lots of little interventions, but they're minute compared to the big spend that the big companies are going to do. So uh, as somebody who's rarely noted for optimism, um, yeah, I think that's fair. It's rarely noted for, I'm actually terribly optimistic that we have a bright future on economic development in messy places using the private sector. Good. And I, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So how'd you get into the business? Oh, my goodness. It, uh, I, you know, if I were to say I had a plan... Pinocchio's nose would be <laughs> tiny compared to where I would be. Um, I, you are sitting in the presence of the luckiest human being on the face of the earth. I mean, I, I, can, I will take you through the track, but uh, good fortune has had a lot to do with it. I, I would say if I had one skill is the wrong word, the willingness to say, yes, I'll try that. I think in odd places was the, the my major contribution was okay I'll do that more than more than anything else. Um, I, maybe it's easy to just walk through it a little bit to tell you how I got here. Um, was uh, went to Berkeley and UCLA as an undergraduate and went to both because in those days the only easy thing to do in the University of California was transfer between campuses. So I used to chase women, girlfriends. They'd go to a different campus, so I'd go to a different campus. And it meant that I was on the campus of Berkeley during the free speech movement, the birth of the student movement that then became the anti-war movement, and then ended up back at UCLA where I was, when I went to law school, I was editor of the daily newspaper. We were the biggest college newspaper in the country at the time. I went to law school to avoid the draft. I mean, I just looked terrible in army green. And so I got a sartorial exemption um, for seven years. And that was a lot of, six years, that was a lot of work. But I really did. I, I totally opposed the war, fought against it, and went to law school. In those days, you could get to graduate. If you could get into graduate school, you could stay there. And uh, I just hated law school, so I became as a graduate student, the editor of the biggest college newspaper. And as it turned out, the leader of the Board of Regents, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California, and a fellow named Bob Haldeman was head of the Board of Regents. Bob Haldeman ended up being the chief of staff for Richard Nixon when Nixon became president. Haldeman didn't like stuff I did as an editor of the paper. There was no journalism department at, at UCLA. We were all political people using this as a political weapon to beat Ronald Reagan. Bam, bam, bam. And he clearly felt it. It set him back dramatically, as Terrible, you can tell. Yeah. He only became president. <laughs> but we pissed him off. And that was, as a student, that was okay. Well, and so, and this is pertinent, uh, he, um, Haldeman ordered a big, Invest, national investigation of me and the paper 
um, and put together this study by all the big new journalists, and they came out with this report that this is the greatest college newspaper in the world, and this is the greatest thing there. I mean, lots of press attention, a lot of attention. So it really convinced me there was no way I was going to be a lawyer. I mean, that was this was too much fun. So I, I left school for a while. I, be, I went to work for a fellow named Ernest Greening, who you have probably never heard of, senator from Alaska, one of the two men who voted against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution that got us into the war in Vietnam. The, that vote was 88 to 2. It, it, nobody can tell you who the 88 were, but you can. lots of people know who the two were, and that was great. He was a great man. He was... Um, he was 83 when I worked for him. He, had, he was part of Roosevelt's brain trust. He actually had met Teddy Roosevelt as a young man. He was uh, editorial editor of the Boston Globe in 1919, got fired for writing pro-abortion editorials, became editor of The Nation magazine, just a fabulous guy, became a senator, um, and I got a job with him. And the White House totally turned off and when Linda Johnson was president if the White House turned off you were turned off and we were in the middle of everything and I loved it I just thought this was the greatest thing ever so I'm writing speeches for him and having a wonderful time and decided to go back to law school to finish law school because he was he was running in 19 this is a long time ago 1968 he was running for re-election in Alaska and he couldn't lose not a problem so he said, you go back and do, you know, go to Chicago for this Democratic Convention, which became a riot, and four days of rioting in Chicago. I put out a student newspaper again, got more famous than I wanted to be. And Greening, at the last minute, got an opponent running in the primary, a guy named Mike Gravel, who was also from UCLA. And... Uh, it was the first one to use television in a, in a political campaign in Alaska and beat Greening in the primary. And suddenly, this wonderful old man was, wasn't a senator anymore. As only a 23-year-old could do, I called him immediately and said, what am I going to do? <laughs> I mean, I, and I'm serious. I mean, I was sort of sorry he lost the job, but was I going to practice law? God forbid. Um, so he said, gee, I'm sorry. And he literally did. He apologized for losing and said, there's this new program called the White House Fellows, and you're much too young for it, but go for it. And um, I did. And the average age still, I think, is 34, and I, and I was 24 at the time. And through this really odd series of things, I made it through every step. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Rhodes Scholars and all these people you always wanted to have dinner with made it to the national finals just when Richard Nixon won. So I'd gone through this entire process under Lyndon Johnson. Richard Nixon wins. It's delayed. And the new White House Fellows panel, all these famous people, including Bob Haldeman from the White House. And I said, well, this is probably not going to go well. So I had a great time. I had four wonderful days in the finals among 35 people because I knew I couldn't win. So they would ask me things like, well, who do you want to work for? I said, well, I want to work for Spiro Agnew, the vice president. And I still remember Pat Buchanan, who was a young speechwriter for the White House, and said, well, 
nobody wants to work for Spiro Agnew. Why would you want to do that? And I said, well, he's a powerful man, and I think I can take over his mind. <laughs> Remember, I was now 24 and thought that was a reasonably good answer. So it gets to Sunday morning, and I'm selected. This cannot be right. I mean, that makes no sense. Well, as it turns out, the White House has a veto. But these were all new to the process, so they thought it was sort of a vote. So Haldeman opposed me, and Buchanan opposed me, and all. but they didn't know they could veto it. They thought it was a vote. So I was selected as a White House fellow. Thanks largely to another, the woman who had just been a White House fellow, Doris Kearns, who's Dor now Doris Kearns Goodwin. So just very quickly, normally you, you know, you then, as a fellow, you can work for any cabinet officer. In those days, you only work for a cabinet officer. Now they do sub-cabinet. I was notified, thanks by Mr. Haldeman, that I could not work in state defense, justice, uh, CIA. There were a whole lot of things that everybody would want to work for that I was not going to be allowed to work for. So I naturally picked up the phone and called Senator Greening again and said, so now what do I do? And he said, you want to work for Wally Hickel, the new Secretary of the Interior? And I said, well, nobody wants to do that. Everybody else had gone flying through the Senate for confirmation. He was held up days and days and days. It turns out uh, Eskimos didn't like him. Environmentalists didn't like him. Women didn't like him. Um, the fact that maybe he didn't graduate from high school seemed to irritate people. There was a whole lot of things. And I, so I said, Senator Greening, why would I want to work for him? You're the most liberal senator. He's a very conservative guy and seems to be an idiot. Why would I want to work for him? And he said, because when you meet him, you'll understand he wants to be Secretary of the Interior for all Americans. He's not going to be a conservative. He's not going to be an Alaskan. He's not going to be whatever you think he is. He has a different view of what this is supposed to be all about. And... I walked in to meet this guy, and as it turns out, he was the first person I ever met who had who would turn out to write more books than he ever read. Um, true, um, and um, had an absolute trust in young people. Absolute trust in young people. Plus, Nixon didn't trust him, so he didn't get to appoint any of his assistant secretaries. So he didn't feel he was supported by his own staff. So he cut up the department a different way, and he gave three assistants the Department of the Interior. This was the birth of the environment movement, so I got environment. And um, for a year, he did everything different from what everyone thought he was going to do. We bought back oil leases in Santa Barbara. We stopped a jet port going into the Everglades. We stopped a chemical company from building plants, you know, where they shouldn't. And then he, then then came Kent, the shootings at Kent State, which you, you may know about or not. But during the war, there was a demonstration at Kent State University, and four college kids were shot, killed by the National Guard, for no reason. And. Um, we had a big staff meeting there must have been 60 people in the room and Hickel said Michael tell people here what you think is going on in the country 
what did I know what was going on in the country, but I knew what I thought should be going on in the country. So I gave my very liberal spiel. Well, you have never seen more political appointees get to a door faster to call the White House in your life. It was really a remarkable experience to see how fast old people could move. Um, and I will just jump ahead. Ultimately, um, when, months later, Hickel sends over appointment papers for me for the White House because he wants to appoint me to stay on as special assistant. Three days later, they come back resigned. So I was resigned. And then three weeks later, they fired Hickel and more fame and fortune in the newspapers. And um, as somebody who had no idea what he was going to do, suddenly I was you know, in the middle of the New York Times and all sorts of other things for about three minutes. But that's really all it, it took. I probably have lived on that for 40 years. Um, he, and Hickel did, took on the, uh, ultimately took on the president of the war on Vietnam, and you don't get to do that as secretary, and got fired for it. Um, and I, I got fired for it, too. The difference is he got six weeks severance, and I didn't. Um, I still remember that. The, and the other difference was he was a millionaire and didn't need it, and I did. Um, when on, the White House fellows rallied around me, and I became appointed a fellow at Harvard. And then I ran political campaigns for a few years, national campaigns and state campaigns, um, which is a wonderful thing to do. But at some point, you have to decide, do you want to do it as a business? And that means, do you want to work for people you don't love? Um, you can pick your party, but if you're going to do it as a business, you got to take the candidate that walks in the door, or you won't have a business. And I didn't want to do that. Um, I got a chance uh, to make documentary films because I was back in LA. And a documentary film company wanted to make documentaries about the political process. I didn't know anything about movies, but I knew that process and we made a series of films including one on Congress here in Washington about a guy named Abner Mikva, a wonderful congressman, won all kinds of awards um, but I also got to see how good filmmakers can be and I knew I wasn't going to be great and I've never seen any reason to do something if you can't be great at it and I knew I wasn't going to be great at it and I, I could be good at it but I got to work with great and I wasn't Great. But because of um, my old journalism stuff and the fact that I was a White House fellow, I got to sit down with the publisher of the LA Times, who was a White House fellow named Tom Johnson, um, a wonderful guy, a truly great American, and who um, believed in the principles of the White House Fellows Program, which is give back, give back, give back, and then when you're done, give back some more. Um, John Gardner, the man who started the program, wrote a number of books about leadership, and key to leadership was what you give away. I mean, big principle of his. Another principle was, though, change every four or five years. Don't just keep doing the same thing. So I said, all right, I'll change every three years. And I then became began a philosophy of not sticking around in a place more than three. So I, I went to, worked for the LA Times, and at the end of three years, I left. Um, had a great time. 
got to work with great people. And at the time, it was a great newspaper. It's not a great newspaper now, but it was a great newspaper then. Um, but because of somebody I knew, and that's why I, want, I just want to say luck, um, I went to work for Norton Simon, who was starting a museum in Pasadena, great museum. And so I got to learn a lot about the museum business, the art world, um, and the egos of incredibly rich people. Um, his secretary, Norton Simon was one of the richest guys in America, made all the money himself. And his secretary either travel, filed his travel under E or G because he said, Mr. Simon either has ego trips or guilt trips. There's no other reason. <laughs> See, and I thought it was funny too. She never laughed. <laughs> but um, he, at one point, he, he, this museum was fabulous. He ran for governor, spent millions of dollars of his own money, six weeks, and got 40% of the vote. Did very well before, this was before rich guys ran. Uh, ran with their own money, I should say. Um, he was always trying to get me to go to political events with him. He was a what we used to say is a Rockefeller Republican, liberal Republican. And he was Jerry Brown in Jerry's first stint as governor named him the head of the Transportation Committee, which in Cal commissioned in California is a big deal. He would say, you ought to come, you ought to come. And I didn't want to come. I mean, I wasn't doing politics. And politics isn't fun unless you're doing it. You don't want to put your toe in. And then, you know, you start to figure out how much you're missing and how much fun you were having. So I just stayed away from it. Finally, he didn't ask. He told me to come to this big commission meeting. And just as I feared, I knew most of the people there. He didn't. He was an old guy. So I'm walking around introducing him to this guy and this guy and this guy. And they were all guys. This person, this person, this person. And finally we leave. We get in the limo. And you can see he is pissed. And finally he said, Michael, I'm 72 years old. All the ego gratification must flow to me. And I waited for a laugh line on that one, too, and he didn't laugh. The, the egos of these guys are so enormous. Some self-made man, he has a lot to be egomaniacal about. But he understood the only thing that was really important was him. Um, so you learn who you want to be often by messing around with people who you don't want to be. I liked, it was great, the life was great, but you know, the ego was enormous. But it, you know, it was a great learning experience. Um, put me in a position to want to really go back to government. And so I got a chance to go into county government and in Los Angeles, county government is a great form of government if you wield power. Um, there's no county executive. There's only three supervis five supervisors for all of Los Angeles County, 12 million people, five supervisors. No committees, no subcommittees. If you have three votes on Tuesday morning, you can do anything you want. And it's, LA County, I think, is bigger as an economy than all but seven states in the country. So if you have three votes, it's great. And if you don't have three votes, it sucks. Um, so um, we had three votes for a long time, and it was a lot of fun. Standing in a movie line, 
and I bump into a woman who I have not, I don't usually tell the story, but who I hadn't seen in years, who I would worked with in politics years before. And I said, Marilyn, what are you doing here? You live in Washington. She said, I just got hired to be general counsel of this new film company because the head of the company hates Hollywood and he wants to do it different. It's this, this guy, George Lucas, he's got the Star Wars movie. Um, I'm in line for the tin drum, so I was not exactly thinking Star Wars. And she said, what are you doing? And I told her, and she said, you know, we need a vice president of stuff, and that should be you. So six weeks later, I was vice president of what had became the most successful film company in America. So I worked my way up, as you can tell. Very hard, pulled, struggled, fought. Total luck. Just total luck. Um, I, I will say, just... Um, I, I still play a lot of basketball. Uh, too much, in fact. And I played even more back then. And Lucas is the most unathletic guy you will ever meet. So I, I'm working... After six weeks, they're ready to make me vice president, but I have to fly up to San Francisco to meet with Lucas. I haven't met, I met him yet because the company was in L.A. at the time. And we were very small, but he did not like Los Angeles. So, I don't know, Tuesday night, I'm going to go up there on Wednesday morning. Tuesday night, I play in my usual basketball game at my at the high school I went to. Now, I said the high school I went to, when I went there, it was Bagel City. By the time I was playing basketball there, it wasn't Bagel City. In fact, we were a state championship basketball team. And um, But I, all the guys knew me, so I played, and... Uh, we had, you know, I was one of the players, so that's fine. Guy who none of us knew was there that night, and um, he was drinking. And I had an odd night in which I was actually playing well, so I made him look really bad. And at some point, he gets really pissed, and he turns around and he decks me. I mean, I'm out on the ground, blood and stuff. I will say it's always great to have friends that kick the shit out of the guy, but so. I got up and wandered home, got up the next morning and had the two blackest eyes you have ever seen in your life. I mean, I looked like a war zone, my own war zone. Get on a plane, and I said, this is not going to go well. Um, this guy doesn't know me at all. You know, maybe he won't notice. <laughs> so I, we, meet, we meet for two and a half hours. We talk about everything. He... He went to the University of Southern California, and if you're from California, you know, there's either USC or there's Berkeley and UCLA. And he went to the wrong one, not in his view. And in fact, at some point he said, Michael, I didn't mind paying for my education at SC, but I hated paying for yours at UCLA. Um, two and a half hours, we talk about everything. He never says a word, never mentions the fact that I'm, I look like I'm barely alive. I go back home. I'm already working for the company, but I go on. A couple of days later, the the vice president of the company, or the president of the company, said, "You got. You're now vice president. Congratulations." And I said, "Well, what happened?" Because he didn't ever say a word. Uh, I said, 
it was it the resume you know I've got this Harvard fellowship and the White House thing and the this thing and that thing he said no Michael you know he hates Hollywood he always wanted to hire a street smart street tough guy and he figured he found one <laughs> as I later said to him the other guy was the street smart, street tough guy. I was the victim of the streets. <laughs> you don't hire the guy with the black eyes, you hire the guy who gives the black eyes. For those years, and I stayed for three years, we did Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then moved on to another movie company, moved to New York, because I was gonna leave every three years. I learned, I did international business, 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 and saw what it meant to work around the world in international business, the power of it. Um, I mean, obviously, the money we played with was huge, but the access that that power gave me to people was just stunning, um, just amazing. And moved to New York, worked for Dino De Laurentiis, which was an Italian film company, which meant I spent all my time out of the U.S., but doing international stuff. Difference was with George, we made a lot of great movies, and with Dino, we made a lot of movies. Um, but again, with a lot of international money, working in much trickier places than San Francisco. And... Um, Partway through, now, we're now all the way up to 1986. And that's important because I got a phone call from a friend of mine who had spent years commuting between the so Soviet Union. Don't forget the breakup didn't come for years. The Soviet Union and the United States as a citizen diplomat. Um, you all cannot imagine how much the two countries, Russia, Soviet Union and the United States, didn't talk to each other. The distance between the country could be measured in the number of nuclear arms we both had. It was scary stuff. We talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but the the governments did not get along, and the distance was enormous. And there were about a dozen people who became known as citizen diplomats. Um, some were famous, like Don Kendall, who was the head of Pepsi, or Arm and Hammer, the head of Occidental Petroleum. But there were also guys like the friend of mine who connected very early on for very odd reasons, had huge access, and basically tried to help people understand the two countries, who we were, and why we weren't trying to kill them and they weren't trying to kill us every minute of the day. He, he was, by the way, um, a professor in paranormal psychology which we would have thought was weird, but the, the Soviets in the 30s were dealing, they found that they had a lot of shoguns in, in uh, Siberia. There was a lot of people who believed in pretty weird stuff. And the Soviets either had to outlaw it or create it as a science because you couldn't have it as a religion, no religion. And they went the science route. And that's how we ended up with biofeedback and a whole lot of other things that they came from fairly weird sources um, and made it into science. It gave Jim incredible access to the astronaut, the cosmonauts and all. So he called me in the 80s and he said, look, things are starting to change here. There's this new guy, Gorbachev. We don't know what it means, but we know it's going to change around economics. And I don't know anything about that. Will you come here and we'll save the world and we'll make a few dollars? And I 
said, I can even quote myself, Jim, that is the stupidest fucking idea I've ever heard in my life. My grandparents, were they not dead, would have died immediately. What it took for them to get out of that place, you know, less than 100 years before, they died thinking I was going to go back voluntarily. So naturally I went back voluntarily. And um, in those days, if an American went to Russia, most people hated it. I saw people who looked like my cousin, and I thought I could do something. So we started by producing rock and roll concerts and movies. So we produced a lot of rock and roll concerts. Um, and over the years, ended up in international, over those next six years as an entrepreneur, got lots of opportunities. One thing, when you were an entrepreneur in those days, it, it didn't have a fancy meaning like it does today. That basically meant you were out of work between things and didn't want to say you were unemployed. So I was an entrepreneur. Um, and we would just start businesses if Russians would give us an idea. So I became an expert, exporter of rare earths. I don't know if you know what a rare earth is, but yttrium, beryllium. And we exported a lot of that stuff. The difficulty is getting the getting a lot out was easy. You could get a license. Getting a little bit out was tough because you couldn't get a license to take out, you know, a half a kilogram. And let me tell you, a half a so we smuggled it. It was the only way to get it out. A half a kilogram of yttrium looks exactly like a half a kilogram of cocaine. And our great fear was some customs officer was going to say, oh, what's this? And it would have immediately rolled over and died. So fortunately, that didn't happen. Got me into international business. We did a huge number of things. And 20-plus um, years ago, a group of people led by Ben Cohen from Ben & Jerry's, the woman who started the body shop, guys who started um, Stonyfield Farm Yogurt, wanted to change the way business did business and wanted to start something that is now called Business for Social Responsibility. They were creating corporate social responsibility. They wanted to create a public policy organization to take on all the other big corporate you know, public policy groups and support things like family and medical leave and equal pay for women. And they asked me, out of nowhere, if I would come back and do that. And my three years was up doing what I was doing. And um, it seemed to me we had a chance to really do something spectacular. So I came back and, and we started this, the CSR movement. What is now, what people now talk about as, oh, that's corporate social responsibility. Milton Friedman called me a criminal because he thought it was illegal to spend corporate money the way we suggested spending it. I've never been more proud to be a criminal um, in my life. One more step. Um, the idea with, with BSR was to do public policy. After a few years, it became clear we were hugely successful, but not doing public policy. We were hugely successful changing the inside of corporations. How do you help corporations do it differently and better? That meant leaving Washington and saying to the corporate world, you can be Stonyfield Farm Yogurt. You can change the way you treat your employees. You can change the way you treat the community. You can change the way you treat the environment. But if you're going to tell companies that and say, we're no longer doing public policy, you have to leave Washington. And I wasn't going to leave Washington. 
So I got headhunted out of nowhere to take over what was then called Citizens Democracy Corps, which is now CDC Development Solutions, which started, which had a lot of AID money, and now 20 years later, I'm stopped, recently stopping CEO. Um, we've worked in 80 countries. We're the only development organization that operates without AID money. We operate with corporate money, with contracts, where we've been able to show the corporations the bottom line benefits of supporting development projects. So that sort of takes me back to where I started. Thank you. Once again, it's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and, and, I I would, and I've had more fun than any nine people in the world should ever have, except when they're shooting at you. So that's yeah. my fun. I suspect there, because uh, we we're, we're a little I'm bit sorry short of time. Sorry I ran so long. But yeah, no, I think people were, were interested. <laughs> Um, any questions? I'm sure there's a few. Ashley? <laughs> well, Ashley, you can't ask because I'm afraid of your questions. Um, I am Ashley Chandler, I used to work here, and uh, now I'm at U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. Um, I'm interested in the Democratic Party's relationship with the Republican Party. Um, I'm Well, I, there's two parts. Uh, part of what the, this administration wants to do with spending money locally, however, I'm not sure I'm very comfortable with because um, we left behind in Angola an Angolan NGO that is very capable, very competent, but it took us five years to do it. If that 30% of that money is going to, has to go to an Angolan NGO tomorrow, you're pissing away that money because they aren't, those, there aren't enough NGOs to go around who can, who can do it well. And as we're cutting back on the countries we're going to operate in, we're going to be operating in countries that it's harder and harder to find that local capacity. We have to help create that local capacity. So I... I, ha I never have any trouble arguing for foreign assistance budgets, but mandating foreign assistance budgets that may go to folks who don't have the capacity to use it right now scares me a little bit. But I, in terms of the general argument of, um, you know, the I think eight of our major trade partners right now, eight of our 20, we're all recipients of U.S. foreign assistance 
less than 30 years ago. I mean, it is clear that growing economies help the U.S. economy because they learn business our way and they end up partnering our way. They want to do business with us. That's where our business will expand to. I mean, I don't have any problem with that at all. And I don't have any, you know, but I, as I said, I do have real problems coming up with this absolute amount of money that may have to go locally in places that are rife with corruption and that don't have the capacity to spend it. I mean, so I wish I could give you a better argument. The certainty of the 30% scares me, mm -hmm. frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we divided CSR into three parts. How you treat your community, how you treat your employees, how you treat the environment. So um, just starting with how you treat your employees, you know, having corporate daycare increases your ability to recruit the best and retain the best people. I mean, study after study shows that. You treat your people better, you add benefits like corporate daycare is the easiest one I can think of, and you're going to get more better women and you're going to retain them. That's just uh, the truth of it. Uh, um, Stride Right Shoes, the first company in America that had daycare, many years ago came up with a figure of cost them $22,000 to recruit and retain somebody. It costs about $400 a person to do the daycare center. So he said that was a bottom line argument. That wasn't, there was, you know, he slept better at night. He was glad he did it. But he didn't have to make a moral argument on that at all. Um, on the environment, I think that's a trickier one um, to make that, that argument. Um, Having had kids slightly younger than you yell at me at the dinner table, that was sort of a CSR moment for me as a CEO on what was supposed to be right. But I, I think the environment is the hardest one to do unless you do the long-term business argument. What are you going to do business if you don't do it? And community, I don't even, you know, where do you want your people to work? How do you want them to live? What attitude do you want them to have going to work in the morning? What kind of people do you want your kids to grow up with? That's your community. Your business wants to add to that, you know, a, 
I think it would translate into a better community, probably as a better place to work. I mean, I, I, I've never run the numbers on that, but the idea that working in London in 1890 was a better place to work than stride right shoes in today, I think is nuts. You know, the, it was a horrible environment in which to work. People were mistreated. People hated going to work. They were treated basically like slaves. And, and Frank, I mean, obviously I come from the left and I'm still a lefty. I think a lot of the big companies, if we didn't have the rules and the regulations, half of them would mistreat their employees. They would take it down to the absolute minimum they could get away with. But half of them wouldn't because they don't think that's the way you're supposed to treat your employees. The, again, the recruiting, retaining, what kind of environment do I want to live in? What kind of environment do I want to work in? You know, if you think the companies would all be wonderful, nice people and treat the environment well, anyway, then you don't need to have a CSR attitude or, or regulations, but I think we need both. Anyone else? God, I can't believe there's not a Star Wars question. This is clearly a generational <laughs> issue here. <laughs> it's an old film. Series. Yeah, but there'll be three more. <laughs> and they'll be better than the last three, which really sucked. But the first three were great movies. Two of the three were great movies. What? I never cared about Empire that much. <laughs> but... Um, Quickly, you know the the last movie was Return of the Jedi was uh, the name of the movie. Well, until two weeks before the movie came out, if you were if you were in my office, you would see a fabulous poster, beautiful poster that says Revenge of the Jedi. That was the name that we worked on until about two weeks left to go in the film. That's what the title was supposed to be, not this wimpy Return of the Jedi. This was Revenge of the Jedi. Two weeks to go, Lucas calls us in, uh, half a dozen people, and he said, I can't do it. He said, I said in the first one, Jedi warriors, revenge do, do not, we do not seek. So we can't do this. <coughs> George, it's your movie. They're, they're your warriors. They can do whatever the hell they want to do. Nope, we are not going to call this Revenge of the Jedi. So it fell to me um, to get up early one morning and start calling around the world to all of our major suppliers, all of whom had printed their toys, books, games, boxes, everything, and say, guess what? Throw them all out. Burn them. Prove to us that you burned them. And then make new stuff called Return of the Jedi. And you pay for it. That was a great phone call. That was, it's the kind of phone call that makes canvassing into Eric Cantor's district for Obama really easy to do. Um, and, and that's what we did. 
But I guarantee you the five of us in that room still have our revenge posters. We didn't burn them. <laughs> it's a beautiful poster. It a, we ended up with this really wimpy colors and not very powerful stuff. It'd be interesting to see if, if one of the three, when they make the next... When, George always had nine movies in mind. He always knew he was making the middle three, then the first three, and then the last three. Um, and And... It'll be interesting to see if one of these last three doesn't have revenge in the title. <laughs> um, hopeful. Not that it matters to me. But, you know, if you need a little plastic action figure of Boba Fett, call me. <laughs> <laughs> one last chance for a final question. Otherwise, join me in thanking uh, Michael for being here. Thank you. Sorry I didn't generate questions. <laughs>